All right, good morning. Before we get going kind of back into our, our Mark series, I just want to kind of fill you guys in a little bit on, you know, some things. We lost a brother this week. We lost um, Austin Goodrich uh, this week, who some of you may or may not know. Austin has been a part of our church for roughly about four years. Um, um, and, and, and Austin, honestly, he, he had a rough kind of time. He was up and down. If you, if you were very close to Austin at all, you had probably several wrestling matches with Austin. I sure did. Um, but we loved him, and, and we cared about him, and he was part of our church family. Um, thankfully, um, as he went to go be with the Lord, Mike and I were able to spend time with him and be with him that whole of that day and to just hang out and to be with him and to pray with him and to read scripture to him and to, and to play worship music to him. And he passed peacefully um, on, on Wednesday evening. Um, Austin if, was, was very estranged from his family, so the next part of my week looked like rifling through his apartment, trying to find any kind of evidence of who his family might be and where they might be and, and these kinds of things. But when I got to the apartment, it was the people there, he had put me as his emergency contact and told them that I knew everything about what he wanted, but I, I really didn't. We hadn't had that conversation. But he told them, and they all knew that, that, that this church was his church, this was his family. That's what he told everybody, everywhere he went, that the Rock Church was his family. And, this, and that's who it was. And in his wallet were, were cards to pass out to people for the Rock Church, you know. And, you know, the last little bit here, we've been estranged as well in Austin's life because that's what alcoholism does. It, the enemy uses it as a tool to isolate people and to drive them into isolation away from family and community and the things that are the, the, really the answer. Last night, like 9.30, Austin's brother called. We've been, we finally found some stuff and with coordinating with the funeral home and them, we finally got a hold of some folks and his brother called me last night about 9.30, you know, and just wanted to know, hey, tell me what Austin's last four years or so, you know, has looked like. And did he have any peace? And we were praying and hoping that he had friends, you know, and that's what this is about, you know? That's why we do what we do here. That's why it's important to be a part of what's going here, not just, not for what it brings to you, but for the contribution that we're able to make for others. You see, when we're not here or you're not here, we're less than what we could be. But when we're here and we're together and we're in fellowship and we're walking through this thing together, then we're a family. And that's what we have to be as a church. We have to, we have, to have like a couple of real goals. And, and we're kind of working on this as a, as a board and just the vision. But one thing that, that really needs to happen in this world that we're living in right now is that we have to recapture family the cornerstone of the family, because the cornerstone is, this is what God has given. It's, it's, it's not a random thing that's out there. It's not something that's disposable or something that's optional. If we want to live in an ordered society and a world, the family, the nuclear family is an absolute um, necessity. Now, there's all kinds of things in our world that have brought in, and there's a lot of brokenness, and I can attest to that, and part of my testimony is part of that. So I don't want to hear anybody hear anything negative. 
but we've got to begin to do what we can to equip and to rebuild and to recapture family in this community. We've, we've, got to, we've, got to be, we've got to have kind of a laser focus on some of those kinds of things. And then the other part of family that we have to do is we have to be that family together. We have to be a healthy community of people together to meet the needs that are out there so that when the Austins of the world come in, and you know, honestly, I mean, it's just the truth. Without the church family, Austin would have died alone. And nobody should die alone. But we were able to walk that final journey with him. And I can tell you that as a pastor, there are a few times in a place, a few places where I feel like I'm absolutely at that point where I need to be. And I can tell you that was one of them. That there was no more important thing that I could be doing on any level, almost, than spending that time with him and helping him to cross through the veil, helping him to die and to die in peace and to, to know some assurance and to affirm the gospel to him and to pray with him is honestly, it's, a, it's an honor and it's a high calling and a privilege to be able to walk with somebody like that. But in order to do that, we have to be involved. We have to be that family. We have to be getting close to people. And that requires both our efforts to be in and be involved and also our efforts to be open and vulnerable and real within the church body so that we're known. See, you can't stay on the periphery of this thing and then just be mad because nobody knows your life whenever you have a struggle or, or something comes. It's why it's the importance of even our small groups and, and the church within the church, the idea that we are known and that we're willing to, to make him known as well to the world around us. So those are just some thoughts that, uh, that my week uh, brought to me this week. And so it was, it, it's just important. It's important what we do. The church we're important what we do and the function that we serve in the world is important. And I can tell you, you know, it was really cool because the nurses and people were just touched and blessed and moved that the church showed up for this guy. Because let me tell you, they've seen Austin in there a lot here and there, right? He's had his struggles, right? Up and down. He's been in and out of the hospital. Alcohol has ravaged his life. But you know what? He's worthy of dignity. He is worthy of love. He's a child of God, right? And thank God, today Austin's struggle is over. It's done for him. He, he struggled in this world. He didn't do it well. He, he had all kinds of stuff and things, and a lot of it was self-inflicted. But we still need to show up as the church and as his family and to do those things. So... It's a high calling, every church, what we do. It's important. It's important what we do. It's high work. It's good work. It's work we need to be uh, committed to and focused on. All right. We'll get into Mark here. All right, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter three verse 7. So you might... Get your Bible out, turn your Bible on, grab one from in front of you, and we'll get started here. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. 
from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Sometimes I think we read over things like that, you know. Sometimes I think we just kind of, as we're reading the gospel, and I, I do, you know, we just, we just read over these things. We just read over, like, what would it have looked like? What, would it, what is it really, what is this text really saying that this scene looked like? This scene is like, it's crazy. It's chaotic. There, there's literally, I mean, if you're worried that the crowd is going to press in on you and potentially crush you, there's the thousands of people probably. We're not just talking about, you know, 20 people pushing in and stuff. I mean, there's this whole thing going on. There's this whole movement of God that is happening. Remember that this is, this is the end of a, of a period of absolute silence for the Jewish people. It's been over 400 years since God has spoke. And now all of a sudden, God isn't just speaking, he's yelling, right? And, and, and there's just crowds and throngs of people that are coming and that are coming to hear Jesus. And they're coming in and they're pressing in that they might just touch him and be healed. And then there's demons that are shrieking and whatnot because they're, they're recognizing that he's the son of God and that he is who he is. And it's just this, this scene that I would say is much more chaotic than orderly, honestly, right? It's... It's just an amazing scene, actually, when you start to think about it, about, about what's going on there. And just who Jesus is attracting. And these people, they're coming to him. And as we think about this, we begin to kind of ponder. And I want to just challenge you sometimes with this idea of the church and who are we? And because we're the representatives of Jesus on this earth. And are they, are they coming in or do they feel like they're not welcome? I, I, I mean, I, I know one thing. Here's what I know. They're welcome. And, and this church body welcomes people. But, but that's, that's one thing, you know, to say, well, if you happen to make it in the doors here, you'd, you'd be welcome. But it's a whole other thing to recognize that there's a reality of the world out there that they have a predetermined idea of what it's like inside of here. And they live in great fear of the idea that, that they'll be judged or that, that if people really knew about them that they would be rejected. It's our, it's our deepest fears to be known and then rejected for, for who we are. You know? I've told you guys this before, and I'll tell you again, it's, it's the absolute truth. If you, if you knew about me what God knows about me, you wouldn't listen to anything I had to say. <laughs> but if I knew about you what God knows about you, I would have locked the door this morning. <laughs> so... You know, we're in this space of grace that we've got to recognize the reality of our shortcomings. We've got to recognize the world that's out there and the view that the world has even of the church, right? The church has, been, has done an excellent job of coming against the world. How about if we come for the world? How about if we come like Jesus did and come for the world? Come for them and, 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 and really begin to to live this out that they might know him. Goes on to say here, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and he called to himself those whom he desired. 
And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So, Luke 6 tells us this. It says that in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named as apostles. An apostle is a, is a sent one. It means one that who was sent, right? And, and, and so, so Jesus, in these days, it says that he went and he prayed all night. He prayed all night long for this decision and for calling these folks, you know? And this is kind of his A-team, right? And we're, we're going to look into that here in a minute. But, but uh, he called them, and he, and he kind of called them with four points in mind. And the first one, I think, is the most important, and it's just this, to be with him. To be with him. He called them first and foremost to be with him. Not to do a lot of things, not to... Not, to, um, not because he had an agenda, but simply to be with him. You and I, you're just called to be with him. And out of that is going to flow every good thing out of your life. Everything that God wants. If, if you just spend enough, if you're, we spend so much time wondering, like, what does God want from me? And what's my mission in life? And where should I go do this? Should I do that? And should I go here? Should I go there? What is that? And God is just like, hey, why don't you just spend time with me? And if you spend enough time with me, you'll, you'll run into your mission. You'll, you'll, you'll find it. But that first and foremost thing is just to be with him, to spend time with Jesus. And I think that's a challenge for us today is, is, is oh, do we really spend time with Jesus or do we just kind of give him, you know, just, just give him a little bit here and there. It's kind of throwing some scraps every once in a while, you know. I can do that. I can fall into those, those spots, those habits. I can struggle with that just like everybody else here. But, but, but what does Jesus want from us? He just, he just wants us to be with him. You know, he, he's really not that interested in you going out right now and just doing a bunch of amazing good things. That's just, actually, honestly, that, that's not the plan. The plan isn't that you would just be like, oh, let me just think of all the good things I could go do. And if I go out and I do those things today, then I'll, have, I'll be pleased with him. No, he's pleased. He's pleased. If you're in Christ, he's pleased. And if you just go out and we just set ourselves to say, I'm just going to go out and do all these good things, and you're working out of your own efforts, you're really working out of your own space, you're working out of your, your own will. And, and most likely the motive is going to be wrong because we generally go out to do that to look good in front of other people. And when we do that, Jesus makes it really plain that we receive our reward. Because that was our intent. That was our heart. He doesn't withhold our reward. We get it because our, our intent sometimes is just to look good in front of people. So when we get that, we get that. But when we spend time with him, when we're really with him, when we, we really, the amazing thing about this, the book, the New Testament, is that we can spend time in here and we can just more and more and more and more get to know him deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's just, there's no bottom to that. There's really no end to it. When we begin to understand more about him, you see, Again, it's, it's, it's the idea that he's, he's the vine and we're the branches, right? That when we abide in him and him in us, then we bear much fruit, right? Bearing fruit doesn't have anything to do with your effort. It has everything to do with where you're plugged in. And when we're plugged into the right place, when we're rooted into the right place, when we're 
being with him, when we're spending time with him, then fruit just shows up. He says to give them a mission. He, he, he wanted to, to give them a mission. And I think that that's, that's that great privilege that we have is that God, God, I mean, think about that. The creator of the universe has a mission for you. He wants you, A, to just be with him. And B, though, he, he, he wants to give us the ability, he wants to gift us with the opportunities to make a difference in the world around us, to be there for others, to be there for the Austins, to show up for those folks like that, to, to just to be simply the church, that they would go out, that he would send them. He wanted to give them and give us, each one of us, a mission. When, we, when you leave the doors here today, there's things to do. The big key is to just spend enough time with God to say, where are you at and what are you doing? How might I join you in that? That they would speak. Part of this is, is this idea that they would preach or that they would speak or they would go and they would be um, anointed to have a message in the world out there. And there's a world out there that desperately needs to hear the good news, right? There's, there's a world out there that, that is so wrapped up in trying to find some kind of a cause to be a part of so that they might feel like their life has meaning and significance. And guess what, church? We have the greatest cause there is. We have the greatest message that there is. And there's a whole world out there. There's, Jesus told us that the fields were white, that, 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 that the harvest is plenty. There's lots of harvest out there. There's just not enough workers. So that means that we just need to be determined to, to spend time with him, to recognize that he has a mission, and just to be willing to, to go out there and to speak the things in the name of Jesus to the world out there. And then he's going to give us authority to be able to do that authority against the, the, the realm of evil that's out there, the, the, the demonic realm, those things. It says that, that he would grant them authority in that realm. He wouldn't just leave them subject to it or, or, or overcome by it or overpowered by it, but that we don't have to fear that. You don't even really have to think about it that much because Jesus, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We, we don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about the evil in the world and the wrong in the world and the struggles of the world, what we need to spend our time thinking about is Jesus and what he's called us to. And to think about the lovely and the beautiful and the, 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 the good things that, that come when we are meditating and we're spending time with him because he's given authority over these other things. And, and sometimes they just have to go when we're in the right place. So he's got this A-team. He calls his disciples, right? He calls them up to himself. He, he brings them to him. And, and, and the first one that's named is Simon, right? Simon, Simon Barjona, the son of John, basically. Um, he's the one who, in Matthew 16, he gets to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, right? Jesus is talking to him, asking him, you know, well, who, who, do, who, do they say, who do they say that I am? Oh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, some say this, that. Well, who do you say that I am? Ah, oh, you're the son of God, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, right? So he gets kind of that whole blessing. Remember, let's start off too. Who is this guy? He's just a fisherman. He's just a common guy. He's, he's nothing special, really. 
He's one of the inner circle, though, also. He's one that, that Jesus continually is pulling in out of his disciples. He, he gets to see, um, uh, you know, amazing things. He gets to go in and, and see a little girl uh, brought back to life. He gets to see the glorified Christ. He's asked to come in and, and to come closer in prayer even with Jesus when, he's, when Jesus is in his most difficult hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's asked just to come and pray and just just be with me. And I think that that's a, there's a great lesson in that too. When, when somebody's in the middle of just tragedy and suffering and struggle, I can promise you um, from experience, the most important thing is just when people are just there and you just know they're there and they're just praying. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. But your presence and your participation and your prayer is everything. It truly is. So Jesus, he was asked to, to do that. And, and you know what? He, he didn't even do so great, did he? Kept falling asleep and stuff, you know? And Jesus is like, man, can't you just stay awake with me for one hour here? You know, the flesh is, or, you know, the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But, but Jesus, you know, he, he never beats him up over this. Uh, this guy pulled a sword on a Roman cohort. I mean, he was ready to die for the cause that he believed he was fighting for. He likely believed Jesus was going to lead them in a rebellion against Rome, and he pulls his sword out in front of a Roman cohort and slashes some dude's ear off, right? And Jesus has to put it back on and fix it, you know, which, which is kind of a cool picture in itself, you know, isn't it? Because like I said, sometimes we go around, we take the sword, our sword, the sword of the Spirit, and we run around hacking people's ears off, and Jesus has to go put them back on and fix it. This guy denied Jesus three times, right? That, that's the guy that he was, right? He went from, from pulling a sword in front of a whole Roman cohort to denying that he even knows him to a little girl. That's from one end to the other. He was the one who got to preach on the day of Pentecost and the church was birthed. 3,000 people came into the church, instant megachurch. Now they're scrambling, trying to figure out what they're going to do with all these people. Can you imagine? He penned two books of the New Testament, and, and basically the, the, the one that we're going through now is, is, is said to be his account. James and John, they were part of the inner circle. They were called the sons of thunder, right? These guys, these guys wanted to burn down a town in Luke chapter 9 in Samaria because they wouldn't let them spend the night. Can you imagine like Jesus, like he spent all night praying over this thing for one thing, right? And he picks these guys and two of them are like, hey, you want us to burn this town down? <laughs> Jesus is like, no, no, stop. They saw Jesus transfigured. They also were asked to come closer in prayer. They were part of that inner circle as well. John, he was the beloved disciple, Right? He went from being the son of one of the sons of thunder to, to, this, to, the, to the beloved disciple, the one who got it, who understood the, the amount and the degree of love that Jesus had for him. And, and, and so he went from way over here to way over here. He ran to the empty tomb, and of course he also made mention that he outran Peter in that, that he was a little faster than Peter in his account. He had to, he had to throw that in there, you know, that he did outrun the other disciple. Pen five books of the New Testament. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. 
Then we have Andrew, the brother of Peter. He brought Peter to Jesus, and he also brought a boy with two fish and five loaves, and Jesus fed 5,000 people with that. Next is Philip. Philip said, I love this, come and see, John 1.46. He just said, come and see, come and see. It's the one, it's the Messiah. And he was this one who was kind of just this, this one who was, who, who, he took the, the gospel to Samaria in Acts uh, chapter 8. And he had an encounter then with a, an Ethiopian eunuch, right, where he was led by the Holy Spirit to, to talk to this guy who was reading the book of Isaiah, trying to figure it out. And he walked up to him and he just said, hey, you know what you're reading? <laughs> And the guy was like, oh, how can I, man, unless somebody helps me with that? And it says that he walked through the scriptures with him and revealed to him the Messiah, right? And they, they got on the chariot, and they went a little ways down, and they found a pool of water. And the guy said, hey, what keeps me from being baptized, right? He said, nothing, if you believe. And they baptized him. And then this guy, then he got, he got just taken away. He got like Star trek right, uh, out of there and into another place. Bartholomew. This is kind of interesting because when we get to like Bartholomew, we don't get much. Bartholomew must have been kind of a behind the scenes kind of guy. You know, he's mentioned four times in lists in the New Testament, but other than that, we don't really know much about his life or what really went on. But he was there. And what he was doing was still important. And he still was doing important work, even if he wasn't the headliner or that we got a lot of stuff for him, we can know and rest assured that as he spent time with Jesus, that Jesus had a mission for him and a mission to speak and to go and to share. Next guy's Matthew. Matthew, a tax collector. He's a traitor. He's a traitor to the Jewish people. He's working for the Romans. He's extorting money out of the taxes that he collects. All of the Jews hate Matthew. But Jesus doesn't. He actually picks him as one of his disciples. He's only named five times in the New Testament, and he's the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. How about Thomas? Doubting Thomas, that guy. But in John eleven sixteen, he said, hey, Jesus is headed back to Jerusalem. He's like, well, all right, let's just go. We'll go die with him. Right? He was a doubter. He went from doubt to, to giving one of the most noted proclamations of Jesus' deity that we have today, which is in John 20, verse 28, when he stuck his finger into Jesus' the, the holes in his side, and he said, my Lord and my God. And when he said that, he said basically, Yahweh. He said, you are the God of, the, of, of everything that we've been talking about. And he went from doubt to this proclamation. Then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, listed four times in lists in the New Testament. He was called James the Lesser, but he was the first to see the risen Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it tells us. Then there's Thaddeus. Two times we see him in lists in the New Testament. We don't really know much about him. Some scholars say that he's possibly Jude, the brother of Jesus that was going by Thaddeus. Possibly he's the writer of the book of Jude, but I don't know. 
Again, another kind of life that's in a little bit of obscurity. Then there's Simon the Zealot, right? He's mentioned four times in lists. The Zealots, they were an aggressive political party. They despised even the Jews who wanted to have peace with the Romans. They were like these, uh, some noted them as, as like the original kind of a terrorist group. They often had violent tactics. But what they believed was this. They believed they had an uh, inviolable attachment to liberty and to say that God is their only ruler and Lord. And so uh, Simon was a zealot. Now, interesting thing with that is Simon being a zealot, he would have automatically been the enemy of Matthew. But Jesus brought them together. And it's a picture of the peace that brings that, that Jesus brings when he gathers people together and the things that happen in the middle of that. You know, it's one of the things I love about the church is the diversity of the church, that we, we get together here today with folks that we would never get together with. It just wouldn't happen. If we were just picking and choosing, like, who we want to hang out with, well, we wouldn't always choose each other. But Jesus brings us together, and he begins to... To, to grow us, and we begin to understand a little bit about how like, man, sometimes that person who really rubs me the wrong way, I actually need that person in my life because God's growing me and he's changing me through them and through, through how that works. And then there's Judas, the betrayer. But you know, Jesus knew him. And here's the other thing, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. The whole while knowing what he was going to do. See, it had no effect. Sometimes we have this, we wonder, we say, well, why would you do that? Why would you have this guy there that you know is going to betray you? God, why would you create people that you know are going to reject you? And I think the simple answer to that is because God's love is unconditional. If it were any other way, if God only created those he knew would accept him, then his love would be conditional. It would be conditional to the response that we have back to him. But God's love is unconditional that regardless of what you or I or anybody else in this world does on their end of the relationship with God, God's response to them is love. He loves everybody. His love is, is supreme. His love is, is, is unequal. It's, it's, it's uncontested. It's the very basis and the nature of who God is. And, oh, Judas was a betrayer. And as we get more into the, to the book of Mark, we'll, we'll talk about that after that happened. But, but Jesus, he loved him. He chose him. Picked him. He brought him into this thing. He spoke truth into his life time after time after time. And so, here we are. Guess what? You're the A-team. You're the A-team. And we don't often feel like the A-team. We don't often feel like, man, you know, I mean, could God really even just use me? Or what, what does that look like? Or does he even care? Or, and I can just tell you unequivocally, yes, he cares. And yes, he wants to use you. And yes, because it's not us. It's, it's not about who we are or what we bring to the plate or how amazing we are or how talented or how any of those things. You see, God's power is perfected in weakness, not strength. So we just bring to the, to the table what we've got. We just bring our brokenness. We just 
bring our struggles, and it's God who makes something out of that. And all of these guys who were just common folks that were just kind of doing life, you know, they all went on, and they eventually, every single one of them, except John, gave their life for the gospel. Eusebius, uh, a father of church history, quotes Origen, a second, third century scholar, saying that Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward as he himself had desired to suffer because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. According to tradition, Andrew was martyred by crucifixion in the Greek city of Patras around 60 AD. Like his brother Peter, Andrew didn't consider himself worthy to die in the same way as Jesus, and so he was bound not nailed to a cross, which was hung in an X shape instead of the T. And for this reason, an X shaped cross is sometimes referred as, to as St. Andrew's cross. Acts 12 tells us this. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So Herod killed James with the sword. Um... When Mary died, John allegedly went to Ephesus where he wrote his three epistles. From there, he was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel where he received the revelation from Christ and wrote the book of Revelation. Eventually, he made it back to Ephesus and died an ordinary death sometime after 98 AD. That was John. Basically, we don't know how Philip died, but there are plenty of possibilities. One record says he died of natural causes. Another says he was beheaded or stoned to death or crucified upside down. What we don't do know is that he died sometime in the first century, possibly around 80 AD. Most of the earliest traditions seem to point to him being martyred in the ancient Greek city of Hierapolis. Uh, Polycrates of Ephesus wrote in a letter to Pope Victor, I speak of Philip, one of the twelve apostles who was laid to rest at Hierapolis. Bartholomew, probably martyred, but like many apostles, there are several ways it may have happened. Most popular and prolific tradition is that he was flayed and then beheaded which is the most, it was why most art portraying him either shows him holding or wearing his skin. Kind of gross, huh? Uh, the Acts of Th uh, Thomas says he was martyred in Mayalpur, India, and he was stabbed with spears. Syrian Christian tradition specifies Thomas was martyred in Mayalpur on July the 3rd of 72 AD, noting that he was killed with a spear. For the guy who went from doubting to that. Uh, the scene of his labors was Parthia in Ethiopia. And she labors, sorry, there's nothing there. Matthew, he became a missionary, arrested in Ethiopia. It was there that he was staked or impaled to the earth by spears and then beheaded. Not much else is known because he was in such a remote place in Africa where most Christians ventured to go. James the son of Alphaeus, was preaching in Jerusalem. He was stoned to death by the Jews and was buried there beside the temple. It's traditionally believed that Jude was martyred in Syria on his missionary journey with Simon the Zealot. Fifth century, Moses of Corinne wrote that Simon the Zealot was martyred in the kingdom of Iberia. And Judas, it says, threw the money into the temple and left, and he went away and he hanged himself. Matthew 27. So these guys all went and they, something happened to them. 
Something moved them from just ordinary to extraordinary. Something, something in them changed them from people who were doubting and just fishermen and just common people into people who were so sold out by the gospel that they were willing to give their lives for it, to give everything for it. They'd seen the risen Christ, and that's what had happened. They'd had an encounter with the risen Christ, and that changed everything for them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went, and they gave their lives for the gospel's sake. And I would hold this, that you just couldn't do that. You couldn't get 11 people together that would be willing to die if it wasn't the truth. If it wasn't their truth, right? Um, talks about this in like more than a carpenter. It's the idea that like, like people die for a lie all the time, but not their lie. You're not willing to die for your lie. So if they had concocted this whole thing and, and come up with some kind of story, remember there was no money to be made, there was no popularity to be had, but if they had, had kind of just come up with this deal, you wouldn't have got 11 of them to take it to their grave. There's just no way. Somebody would have been like, I'm out. Here's what really happened. But they didn't. And they died for their faith. And, and we have them kind of just, that have went before us. And we have before us just this opportunity to really make a difference in the world that's in front of us. But A, just spend time with him. Spend time with him. Be there. That's what he wants, that we might be with him. Remember, he's got a mission for you. He's got things for you to do. The God of the universe has a plan. And that plan is playing out today. And let me just say, too, as we kind of close out here, it's that that plan is, is playing out, and that's what we're seeing, that, that this went from years and years and years, hundreds of years of silence into just this scene where Jesus has broken out, and there's a movement of God in this world that is absolutely amazing. And, and God, through history, has moved like that. There have been times where it's more quiet, and then there are times where there's these massive movements. We've seen it. it, it they, they teach it in history. You can ask Luke about it. They're, they talk about things, even in history class, about the Great Awakening, Right? Differences, the, the things that, the, the, when God's spirit was just really moving um, heavily through this world. But God has a mission for you. He wants you to speak. He wants us to, to have on our lips and to speak. We talk about the things that are important to us. We just do. He wants us to speak. Um, and he just wants to, he wants to use us. And he wants to empower us and to give us authority. So as we close up here, it says in verse 20, then he went home and the, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. It was getting pretty crazy. It was getting kind of uncomfortable as a matter of fact. It was uncomfortable for, for people. And, and I want to just hold that, that like, that there are two things that, like I've talked about, that these, there are these times and there are these places and there are, there, are, there are things and there are times in history where God moves and he moves mightily and stuff. And so, so sometimes we're, we're, we're praying, we're always praying for that, but we have to pray for that also with acceptance and understanding that God is in control. He's in control of history and he's, he's taking things to a certain place. Or maybe we're praying for somebody and we, 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 of course we pray and we pray for healing and we pray for hope for people, but we also have to pray that way with acceptance for his will and for what he's doing because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. But let me also say this too. 
that sometimes if we're a little bit more on the conservative side, that when God really begins to move in the world around us, it's not necessarily always comfortable or easy or something that we would just be like, oh, wow. As a matter of fact, Jesus' own family here is like, oh, we better go gather him up because this is getting kind of carried away, right? But God was, at, it was moving in the world there. And, and there's a lot going in on, on in our world right now. And I'm, I believe that God is going to really move mightily in the world around us. I think it's going to get really exciting. I think that instead of us being really scared about what's going on, I think we should be really excited as Christians and be like, wow, look at this. This is wild. But what if, what if we're living in a time where one day when you're speaking, when we're all in heaven, people are like, wow, you got to live then? What was it like? What'd you do? That's amazing. You got to live during all that? There's a lot shaping up, and we have this high calling. And regardless of how it ends, he has a plan, he has a mission for us. Let's be found doing what he's called us to do, both as a church, corporately, and individually, too, as we go out of here. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you that you have a plan. We thank you that you are at work. We're, we're so grateful that, that, that you're not constrained by anything but that you are absolutely able and willing, that you're moving on the earth and that you're moving through the church. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would help us with that. Help us to truly just be the church and to, to move in unison with what you're doing, to be in step with you, to just spend time with you, to recognize that you're, you're truly pleased with who we are and what we're about, but that you also have things for us to do. So, Lord, may we just be faithful to be that family. May we be there for those who, who need and desire of a family. May we be a family to those. May we, may we be about a ministry to the least of these. That, because you tell us that when we, when we serve and we meet the needs of the least of these, that we do it for you. So, Lord, we just, uh, we're asking your help. We're asking that you would empower us and strengthen us, that you fill us with your spirit, that you would send us out of here, Lord with a message of hope and love to the world around us. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.